And the other is that uh, on your behalf, uh, I want to say hi to uh, Risto and Leanne and Ayla and Otto because I know that they listen to this when it's on the internet and I just thought, oh, it'd be nice to say hello. So uh, greetings to you. Uh, you'll hear this, I don't know when you listen to it, but you will get it sometime this week, I think. And it's good to remember them uh, as we sit together as a family around the Lord's table. Martin Luther was once asked, what are your favorite Psalms? And he replied, the Pauline ones. And this is the reason he gave. For they all teach that the forgiveness of our sins comes without the law and without works to the man who believes, and therefore I call them Pauline Psalms. Now we are going to celebrate this morning the blessings that we receive from God and the great blessing of forgiveness. There's an old, old hymn that I know at least one couple in this congregation who could sing it, and I'm probably the only one at this moment. No, two couples, I think, could sing it. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to count the blessings that God has given us. And that's true. If you are a Christian, it is true no matter what your personal circumstances might be just now. We, we sang there about our true security being found in God. And some of you this morning are going to be full of the joys because um, in, in the words of Paolo Nettini's song, Pencil Full of Lead, you need to listen to that. You know, you've got a pillow for your head, you've got, you know, fuel in your car, you've got a license for your telly and food for your belly and so on. It's, it's actually a much better song than that immediate snippet sounded like. But uh, uh, there are some of you who are just going to be happy because just everything is going right for you but that's not really the source of your happiness. That's temporary and it will disappear because tomorrow everything will go wrong. And there are some of you for whom everything is going wrong and you think, how can you possibly rejoice? And the answer is you can rejoice because this is true. If you are a believer, now if you're not a believer in Jesus, then I, I hope that what you hear this morning will, will make you want to belong to Jesus Christ. We really are going to look at the, the main blessing is really forgiveness of sin and, and what that means. Uh, it's, this song is a prayer of confession. Uh, most people think that it's tied in with Psalm 51. It's uh, after David and Bathsheba, and you'll know the story of how David uh, saw, he was out on the roof of his palace, and he saw Bathsheba bathing, and in effect fell in love with her or lusted after her or whatever. Uh, he, as king, abused his authority and ordered her to come over. He slept with her. She got pregnant. In order to cover that up, he arranged for her husband to return from fighting the battle, actually a battle which David should have been fighting, and this man refused to go into his wife and sleep with his wife. Uh, David got him drunk. That still didn't work. David sent him back to the battle, and he sent an order to his general, make sure he's at the very front where he'll get killed. And he was killed. And then David took Bathsheba, married Bathsheba, and so on. Now, it's a horrendous action, a horrendous evil, a horrendous story. And David, for nine months, lived with that on his conscience. And until the prophet Nathan came to him and spoke to him and convicted him of his sin. And these two songs, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, 
come from that. Psalm 51 first, and Psalm 32 is uh, David talking about the forgiveness he has received from God. Now, I don't think that many people here have committed murder um, or perhaps even adultery in the sense that David did, but in the sense that Christ interprets the law, then we are all uh, guilty of many, many different sins. And how we deal with that is going to affect absolutely everything in terms of our lives. We can cover it up, we can hide it, we can deny it, we can be beaten down by it, but there is only one way for us truly to live at liberty and to be free, and that is to know the blessing of God's forgiveness. So, I'm just going to go through this psalm and let us see what that means. Verses 1 to 5, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Why do we need forgiven? Why do I need forgiven? Why do you need forgiven? It is because of the seriousness of sin. And David uses three different words that sum it all up, what sin is. First of all, transgression, rebellion, deliberate flouting of God's will. And we do that. We know what God wants, but we go against what God wants. God tells us what His will is, and we deliberately go against it. So, God tells me I am to love my enemies. When I hate my enemies, I am going against God's will. God tells me in in, in so many different ways, the different ways I, I should behave and the attitudes I should have. But humankind is so pathetic that we think that we can transgress the law of God, that we can break the law of God. Sins is the second word that's used. Those are the specific items of wrongdoing in thought and word and deed. The transgressions is this general attitude of rebellion. The sins are the specific items of wrongdoing, where what we think, what we say, what we do is a direct breaking of what God asks of us. And and what God asks of us is not as a test, but what He asks of us is that we reflect His character and who He is. We are made in His image. And then the third word that's used here is the word deceit. And that's the inner moral distortion of the fallen nature. What that is, is very simply, you and I can justify what we do because our fallen nature is so twisted, we can almost explain away everything. And that's where the second part, the necessity of confession, what can I say? David deals with these three things, and what we have to do in that confession is very straightforward. First of all, we have to concede. 
we have to acknowledge what we have done. If we don't do that, then in verses 3 to 5, he talks about, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. If we try and cover up our sin, if we try and conceal what we are, if we cloak it, then what does it do? Verses 3 to 4, it eats away at us because sin is not something that is external to us. Sin is something that is internal, and no matter what you do, you cannot get rid of what is internal to you. It's at the very, you might say, well, I will never ever, let's say, for example, um, somebody has a problem with looking at internet porn and say, I'll never look at internet porn again. Doesn't matter because what caused you to do it in the first place is still within you. Someone might say, well, I'm never going to swear again. Doesn't matter because what caused you to swear in the first place is still within you. The trouble is that we can decide that we are not going to do something in a sense of an immoral action, but because we ourselves are are bound over to sin within us, then we deceive ourselves. And what happens is it eats away at us. Verses 3 to 4, he's saying, it's torture. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. It is thirst. It is the drought of being without God, a spiritual thirst and hunger. And that's why the saddest position for any of you here today is going to be this. It's going to be if you refuse to acknowledge your sin if you'll acknowledge other people's sins, but you refuse to acknowledge yours. Because because you refuse to acknowledge it doesn't mean that it goes away. It's like somebody who has cancer saying, I refuse to believe I've got cancer. Because you refuse to believe you've got cancer, forget the power of positive thinking. It doesn't mean the cancer goes away. And when you say, I refuse to acknowledge that I am sinful, or I refuse to acknowledge that, that I've done such sin that it would mean that God has to sacrifice His own Son, when you do that, what you're doing is you are giving yourself a life of hypocrisy, a life of illusion, and a life ultimately of inner torment. On the surface, in your mind and in your heart, on the surface, things will just sail along quite smoothly, but underneath, that storm is always there. Long before Freud, the Bible recognized and spoke of the subconscious and what's involved. So, we have to confess. We have to acknowledge that we have rebelled, that we have deliberately gone against God. That's why we do that in the morning uh, service here when we do a corporate confession together to remind us who we are and whose presence we are coming into. We don't cover up. We don't cover up any of our specific actions because sometimes it's very easy for us to make a general confession of sin. Oh, Lord, I'm a sinner. Oh, Lord, we are sinners. Oh, Lord, woe is us, because that's what you're supposed to do. It's easier to do that than it is to specifically admit that you have done something specifically wrong. I'm always right. At least that's the way that I talk, and in many ways, that's the way that I behave. And yet, sometimes we have to, I have to turn it up and say, I got this wrong. I was wrong. The radical thing about what the Bible says is that there isn't a single person here 
who would be able to stand up before God and say, I am right. There's nothing wrong in me. I haven't done anything wrong this past week. I haven't said or thought done anything wrong. There is no cover-up. That's why it's so perverse for people to be religious to try and cover up their sin. It's so perverse for people to think that they can hide from an all-seeing God. We have to confess our actions and our inmost thoughts. And a a true prayerfulness before God is not the, the arrogance that some people have of coming to God and telling Him what He should do and so on. It's coming to God as broken people and saying, Lord, You are so right. Your Word is right. And I am wrong. I have done wrong. I have said wrong. I have thought wrong. And to be honest, you know how wrong I am far more than I know how wrong I am. It's one of the most dangerous prayers in the whole Bible to pray, Lord, show me my sin. You don't really want to see it. But we come and we confess. And then there's the certainty of forgiveness. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. How is it possible to know that you are forgiven? The rebellion against God. The relationship is restored. The inner man is renewed. It's taken away and something else is put in its place. And again, the same three notions of sin that they are dealt with. The radicalness of the Christian gospel is not that it takes some external actions and helps us to put them right. The radicalness of the Christian gospel is that we are forgiven, that we are renewed, that we are restored, so that even the cause of those external actions, even the sinfulness within us, it's gone, it's dealt with, it's forgiven, it's cast away, says Psalm 103, into the depths of the sea. It's a great blessing to be forgiven. And if you as a Christian, as you take communion this morning and you take that bread and you drink that wine and you say, I am forgiven, I am forgiven. There's nothing that you have done, nothing that you have said, nothing that you could do, nothing that you could say that is not forgiven by what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's why it's a Eucharist, a thanksgiving. It's why it's a a celebratory meal, just to know that you, the blessedness of being forgiven. That's what we we celebrate as Christians. We also celebrate, verses 6 to 7, the Lord's security. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Sons of Korah have this uh, as one of their songs, one of the psalms they sing, and they have a beautiful version. And if I'd thought about it, I would have brought it with me, but I'll bring it tonight and let you hear it tonight. Um, And they translate this last line, you surround me with redemption songs. That's a great idea. Let me just explain just a, a little bit of what the Lord's security means. David is saying everyone can pray, not just me. We can pray while God may be found. The New Testament tells us that today is the day of salvation. Everyone who's godly, what does that mean? David, the godly man, the murderer, the adulterer, he's godly. How does that work? 
somebody who's loved by God and someone who loves him in return. That's what godliness is. We come to him, and the result is that he is our refuge, our hiding place, our protection from trouble. Trouble shall not disappear, but it shall do me no real harm when God is my refuge. Indeed, it can even be turned towards my good. All things work together for the good of those who love God. And I just love that phrase, he surrounds me with redemption songs. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great enlight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Still find that verse astonishing, the idea that God sings and that He sings over us and that He protects us, surrounds us with redemption songs. It's a, it seems a strange way to be defended, a strange way to be protected. But the Lord's love is with His people. The Lord's song is with His people. And as we sit at the Lord's table, it's as though, in fact, it is Christ who is present with us, who sings and rejoices with us, and who protects us with His singing. Uh, like many of you, I, I have uh, an iPhone or whatever it is, different things. That, you know, you plug your MP3 player, and you, you, you're going along the street, and you, you kind of live in your own wee world. I was cycling um, down, came down past uh, Balgay Park. It was a beautiful morning this morning when I cycled down to the church, and I was actually listening to Sons of Korah, and it was just gorgeous. The sun was shining, and the road was clear, and I thought nobody was around, and I wasn't even showing off. I was cycling with no hands, um, going, yeah, it was brilliant. I was really, you know, I, I don't do the hallelujah thing in church because I'm a Presbyterian minister, but I do it in private. And I thought it was private, and um, I shouted out hallelujah, and the elderly couple who were out walking their dog obviously got a big shock. <laughs> but God does that. God surrounds us with song. It's, a, it's just a, a great security for us to have. He rejoices over you with singings. Think about that as you take the bread and the wine. Number three, blessing of the Lord's instruction, verses eight and nine. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. The security is that God's eye is on us. He watches over us. This is not God as CCTV with a camera watching every... I'm watching you. I'm watching you. You know, like a parent will say to their child, I'm watching you. This is not... That's not what's meant. It is watchful care. And part of that is He instructs us. Now, for some people, that doesn't sound good. It sounds like some kind of impersonal diktat, but it's not that. Let me explain it this way. We are in a secure relationship with God. There are two kinds of security. There's the kind of security where you are locked in a prison. That's pretty secure. You are there. You can't get out. You are bound. 
But there's another security where you are free. There are some people who mentally and emotionally actually prefer to be in the psychological prison because at least they know where it is. It's, you, you see it sometimes, for example, where uh, a woman is battered by her husband and goes away and yet keeps coming back, comes back to the, into that abusive and horrendous relationship, sometimes just because it is the, even though it's, it's, it's horrendous, it's still the only security that is known. But that's a, that's a, forgive the expression, but it's true, that's a hellish security. That's a security that's from the pit. There's a security where we are free and where we love freely so that the instruction we get is not the kind where we have a forced compliance, but a loving obedience. That's what we want. We want to be taught by God so that we can please God because we love God. And that's again why we, when we sit at the Lord's table, the Lord is instructing us and He's teaching us and He's reminding us of what He's done so that we will then obey Him willingly and gladly and freely. The Lord does not want human robots obeying Him. He wants human beings who are created in His image with the power of thought, with personality, with feeling, who will freely and truly and willingly love Him. And He's gone to an awful lot of trouble to make that happen, to ensure that that is possible. It's a great um, saying in terms of instruction. I put it up there from Dostoevsky. Uh, Andrew reminded me of it this week. I have a childlike conviction that suffering will be healed and smoothed over and that at the world's finale in the moment of eternal harmony, there will be reveal, revealed something so precious that it will suffice for all hearts to allay all indignation, to redeem all human villainy, all bloodshed. It will suffice not only to make forgiveness possible, but also to justify everything that has happened with men. Sometimes Dostoevsky just gets it so beautifully. And what he's saying here is what the psalmist is saying about being instructed and taught in the way we should go. We are not in the position now where we are here, where we can look at God and say, that's not fair, that's not right, that doesn't work, and we have this big understanding. We are not. We are in the position of being here, if you like, and God's final purposes and understanding of that being over there, and we are on our way to finding out. But as we are on our way to finding out, we have light because that light is Jesus Christ, and that light gives us hope that somehow everything in this world that goes wrong, everything in this world that's evil, yet nonetheless, it is all pointing towards a final, ultimate good. It will suffice not only to make forgiveness possible, but also to justify everything that has happened with men. When we sit at the Lord's table, when we're reminded of the cross, when we're reminded of what Jesus has done, it's the Lord is instructing us, and He's saying, I know. I know your pain. I know your suffering. I know your hurt. I know your confusion. I know your darkness. I know the everything that's gone wrong and is going wrong in your life. But still, all things work for the good of those who love me. There is the blessing of the Lord's instruction, and that's, of course, tied in with verses 10 and 11, the blessing of the Lord's love. Many are the woes of the wicked, 
But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in Him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all who are upright in heart. The waters are there, the waves are there, but the wicked sink, the righteous have a shelter. When we sit at the Lord's table, we're saying, we are righteous, we are made right with God through the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. We are upright in heart. How can a man who in his heart has looked at a woman and lusted after so much that he ends up killing her husband, committing adultery, how can he possibly write about being upright in heart? Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Because the forgiveness of God goes right into our innermost being, not just forgiving one specific action for which we are sorry, but renewing our whole inner being. Verse 10, we are loved with a love that never fails. The love that never fails. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to His name. Now, there's this just this great teaching, and I, I mean, I keep saying this to so many people, and Christians and everyone else. I cannot understand people who profess to be Christians and who don't like doctrine and who especially the, the doctrine of the cross, they, they are very uncomfortable with it. Please turn to Romans chapter 4 because let me read this before we take communion. And it's, this is the verse, Paul quotes this psalm. What shall we say Romans 4 verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. It's not as if, as many Christians seem to believe, emotionally at least, that God is holding your sins in reserve to see if you make it as a Christian, and if you don't make it, He's going to pile them all back on you again. There is something so radical going on here that if you really, really believe this, you would walk out of this building with a spring in your step. You would want to hug people and just tell them this great, great news. Because what David is teaching, what Paul is teaching, what the whole of the Scripture teaches us is this. It's as though God prepares a coat for us, a cloak for us, and He puts it on us. He takes our filthy rags and He clothes us in His pure righteousness. It's, that's what we mean by imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus coming to us. What the Lord says to David is this, and David grasped this even without having the, the experience of seeing the cross as we do. You have acknowledged your sin with Bathsheba. Give it to me. You have acknowledged that your heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Give it to me. And here, as I take your murderous heart, as I take your sinful inclination, as I take your lust, here's mine, what I'm giving to you. Here's my good deeds. 
my righteousness, my purity. And that's what happens with us. When we take communion, there's a kind of exchange. You're getting the bread and you're getting the wine. They're telling you what Jesus did. And what Jesus does is simply this. He comes to you and he says, give me it. Give me what's within you. Give me that which hurts. Give me that which is filthy. Give me that which the hatred and the bitterness and the hardening and the lust and the deceitfulness and the greed and the pride and the selfishness and the self-absorption. Don't keep it. Give it to me, and I'll give you my good deeds, my righteousness, my purity. And here, have your heart back, renewed, cleansed, restored, and forgiven. Now, if you really, really, really believe that, you would, you would just be absolutely exultant, cleansed, healed, restored, forgiven. That's the gospel. That's why we love the gospel. That's why we rejoice in the gospel. That's why the gospel is not just something that some people seem to have as, as to batter other people with, but it is, it is just the good news of Jesus for us. We are going to sing in a moment Psalm 51, and as we sing it, I ask you just to reflect upon that. We confess our sin in singing that, but as we confess it, we're handing it over, and we're saying, Lord, take it. Take it. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Renew me. And He will, not because you're good, not because of what you promised to do or what you promised not to do, but He will because of His Son, Jesus, in whom you believe and trust. Let's pray. Lord, bless Your Word to us. Help us to understand it and to apply it. Help us to exalt and to rejoice in the gospel. Oh, Lord, there is a depth of wickedness and depravity within us that nobody sees but you. And when we see it, to some degree, we're so overwhelmed and burdened, we can hardly believe what you say to us. You ask us to give you it. You take it. You're crucified for our sins, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you clothe us in your righteousness. O Lord, teach us, instruct us in the way that we should go, and may we rejoice and exult in, in you, for we ask it in your name. Amen.